American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. This talk was given at the Graduate Center. Uh, my name is Josh Brown, and I'm the Executive Director of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning and a member of the history faculty here at the Graduate Center. I'm pleased to welcome you this evening to the first program in a series of three public panels called Still Hazy After All These Years, marking the sesquicentennial of the start of the American Civil War. Tonight's panel is entitled, Did the Real War Ever Get in the Books? Playing off of, for the umpteenth time I know, Walt Whitman's plaintive observation about the gap between the experience and the history of the Civil War. And finally, we'll hear from James Oakes, who is Distinguished Professor of History and, and Graduate School Humanities Professor here at the Graduate Center. A PhD at the University of California, Berkeley, his books include The Ruling Race, A History of American Slaveholders, and Slavery and Freedom, An Interpretation of the Old South. His most recent book is The Radical and the Republican, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Lincoln, and the triumph of anti-slavery politics, which won the 2008 Lincoln Prize. James McPherson, the, the Paramount Civil War historian, wrote the following in the New York Review of Books. Having previously written two fine books on slavery and slaveholders, James Oakes has had a growing affinity with those who wanted to put an end to slavery. He brings Douglas and Lincoln together in these pages where they share the honors of victory in that historical struggle. No one has told this dramatic story better. Jim's forthcoming book, Out of the Darkness, The Destruction of Slavery in the United States, will be published by W.W. Norton. Well, I wasn't going to begin this way, but I should preface my remarks by saying that when I started this project on emancipation about uh, how many years ago now, I had exactly the same impulse that Stephanie uh, just spoke to, that, that somehow the missing agent in the history of emancipation was the Confederacy. And I was glad to see her book. I think it did exactly what, what it, it should do. I think Bruce Levine's book is going to further that. Curiously, along the way, uh, it changed my own project. Because it, it, it occurred to me, uh, the more I did the research, the more it occurred to me that even in national old traditional national terms, we don't really have a clear understanding of what the Union was up to. And that's what I'm going to talk about, Union policy, which I don't think we've fully understood, notwithstanding the primacy of the National Union narrative. Edward Pierce is a familiar character in histories of emancipation. The prosperous son of a Massachusetts businessman, Pierce held firm anti-slavery convictions and had close ties to the leading lights of New England abolitionism. Stationed at Fortress Monroe at the outset of the war, Pierce's feelings about slavery were so well known that when his own term of enlistment ended, General Benjamin Butler invited him to stay on and supervise the fugitives in their transition to freedom. On the basis of his experience, Pierce published an influential article in the Atlantic Monthly in August of 1861. Three months later, a joint Navy-Army operation took control of the Sea Islands off South Carolina, establishing a critical beachhead for the South Atlantic Blockading Squadron. In December, Secretary of the Treasury Salmon P. Chase offered Pierce a job as Special Treasury Agent in charge of the contrabands at Port Royal. After accepting the appointment, Pierce went, went to South Carolina and spent several weeks inspecting the conditions on the Sea Island plantations that had been abandoned by their owners in the face of the invading Union forces. 
Pierce wrote up a report for Chase in late January of 1862, then published his findings, first in the Boston Papers, then in the influential New York Tribune, later reprinted in Frank Moore's Rebellion Record. A few months later, having returned to Port Royal and begun his work in earnest, he published a second report, once again widely circulated and extremely influential. It was on the basis of Pierce's reports, for example, that Freedmen's Aid Societies were formed in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia, under whose sponsorship a wave of teachers, engineers, and volunteers with various skills descended upon the Sea Islands beginning in March of 1862 to set up the schools and establish the first great experiment in free labor among the former slaves. So it was altogether fitting that in 1896, when A.W. Stevens prepared a collection of Edward Pierce's writings for publication, the editor chose to include the three articles on the contrabands, the one on Fortress Monroe and the two on Port Royal. But the essays perplexed Stevens. Pierce had published them, the editor noted, in February and June of 1862. The first had been written nearly a year before Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation. And yet, Stevens pointed out, both essays on the Sea Islands contrabands, quote, assume their freedom as already established. How could this be, the editor wondered, 35 years later. At the time, early 1862, quote, there was as yet no definite policy or, or public opinion on the fate of the Southern Negroes, Stevens explained. So why had Pierce written as though their freedom was an accomplished fact? Stevens guessed that, given the sensitive state of the public mind in early 1862, Pierce had deemed it wise, this is a quote, to avoid argument on the vexed question by writing his essays as if the slaves on the Sea Island had already been freed. To Stevens, it was simply inconceivable that slaves had actually been emancipated in significant numbers prior to the Emancipation Proclamation, and by and large, historians share that assumption. Willie Lee Rose wrote that when Pierce wrote, went to Port Royal, the status of the contrabands was as yet undetermined. The editors of the Freedmen and Southern Society Project state unambiguously that the freedom of the Sea Island slaves was not clarified until January 1st 1863, when Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation. By 1896, Pierce's editor, like most historians since then, was writing within what might be called the shadow of the proclamation. Beginning in the months leading up to Lincoln's announcement, and pretty much ever since then, the Emancipation Proclamation assumed a monumental status that casts a, a, an, a, a dense shadow over slavery's demise, obscuring everything that came before it, everything that was going on at the same time, and everything that came after it. Historians of all stripes seem unable to escape the shadow. Lincoln worshipers still claim that by affixing his signature to the proclamation, Lincoln, quote, freed the slaves with the stroke of his pen. But even Lincoln skeptics see the proclamation as the crucial moment when Lincoln, however belatedly and hesitantly, nevertheless at last recognized slavery's centrality and in so doing transformed the conflict from a war for, for the Union to a war for emancipation. Either way, the proclamation remains the centerpiece in the history of emancipation. By this reasoning, of course, Pierce must have got it wrong because there could not have been any legal emancipations of any significance prior to the proclamation. And as for the 13th Amendment, that's been reduced to a mopping up operation, the mere coda, as one historian called it, to the proclamation itself. 
If I sound skeptical, that's because, well, I'm skeptical. Or to put it more academically, on the basis of my recent research, I can no longer accept the thesis <laughs> that the Union did not begin emancipating slaves until January 1st, 1863. I'm inclined to take at face value Edward Pierce's assumption that the Sea Island slaves were already freed when he wrote those reports in early 1862. We miss those early liberations in part because in the scholarly literature, emancipation has plenty of aftermaths but not much in the way of origins. The union to emancipation trope is based on the development of union policy towards slavery during the war, but in most histories that policy has no pre-war origins. To be sure, Lincoln's scholars chart the development of his anti-slavery politics, and slavery historians now routinely trace the roots of discontent back into the antebellum quarters. But as a policy, Emancipation appears to have had no pre-war origins. It was entirely the consequence of wartime pressures that built up in the first year and a half of fighting until, finally, Lincoln issued his proclamation and in so doing transformed the meaning of the war from Union to emancipation. I doubt if anything Lincoln ever said is more commonly repeated by historians than the promise he made in his inaugural address that he not to interfere with slavery in the states where it already existed. That little quotation is all the proof historians seem to require to demonstrate that when the war began, neither Lincoln nor the Republicans had any idea of emancipating slaves. Hence, emancipation as a policy had no pre-war origins. The historian in me balks. That can't be right, and I don't think it is. Consider Lincoln's inaugural promise. The fact is that nearly all abolitionists and all the historians I know of agree with Lincoln. The founders had made a series of compromises resulting in a constitution that did not allow the federal government to abolish slavery in any state where it existed. William Lloyd Garrison wrote that consensus into the founding document of the American Anti-Slavery Society, the 1833 Declaration of Sentiments, which flatly declared that the power to abolish slavery rested exclusively with the states. Theodore Dwight Weld said the same thing. So did Joshua Giddings, Salmon Chase, Charles Sumner. They all said it. The federal government had no power to interfere with slavery in the states where it already existed, which raises the obvious question, how then did the abolitionists expect to get slavery abolished? A small group of non-political abolitionists argued for moral suasion, an even smaller faction of anti-slavery radicals argued that the Constitution was an anti-slavery document, but most abolitionists believed, on the one hand, that the Constitution did not allow the federal government to abolish slavery in the states, but that, on the other hand, political action was necessary to get slavery abolished. What political action? Given the Constitution's restrictions, what did they think could be done? The answer to that question is long and complicated and fascinating, but more to the point, the answer to that question is the origins of emancipation policy. But because historians have not addressed the question of how the opponents of slavery expected to get around the Constitution's ban on federal interference with slavery in the states, they consistently misinterpret Lincoln's inaugural address. Not knowing what the Republicans assumed they could do to undermine slavery, historians don't recognize the policy when Republicans implemented it at the beginning of the war.
Instead, everybody assumes the slaves were not being emancipated, and we block out all the evidence that they were. For example, when in early December of 1861, Lincoln in his first annual message to Congress stated matter-of-factly that under the terms of the first Confiscation Act, quote, numerous slaves had been liberated, we simply ignore him. And when one month later, Edward Pierce began writing those articles that assumed that the contrabands at Port Royal were already free, we ignore him, or like his editor, we scratch our head in search of some cockamamie explanation for why he wrote those articles the way he did. And we ignore Edward Philbrick, who in February of 1862 agreed to join the first wave of New England volunteers to the Sea Islands only after having received assurances from the War and Treasury Departments that the contrabands could never be re-enslaved. And what do we do when in March, of, in March, a month later, the Treasury Secretary himself tells a Fort Royal planter to his face that his slaves are free? We ignore him because they were all wrong. Pierce, Lincoln, Chase, Philbrick, they were all suffering from the delusion that by late 1861 and early 1862, numerous slaves had been liberated. Because just as emancipation policy had no pre-war origins, Neither were slaves actually freed prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. It simply cannot be. If there's a story yet to be told about what happened before the Emancipation Proclamation, there's an equally important one about what happened after it. Here the problem is, analytically at least, almost the reverse of the first one. If we err in assuming that there was no emancipation prior to the proclamation, we likewise err in assuming that once the proclamation was issued, the downfall of slavery was assured. Put differently, I think we need to ask why, a year after the proclamation was issued, Republicans felt it was urgently necessary to agitate for a constitutional amendment to abolish slavery. Here again, we tend to ignore a large body of evidence coming from Lincoln and the Republicans in which they testify to their own dawning realization that they had underestimated how hard it would be to destroy slavery. This is where I think the, con the Confederacy comes in. They underestimated what the Confederacy was willing to do and prepared to do and able to do to thwart emancipation, all the way down to the level of individual slaveholders and all the way up through the state, local state and national uh, Confederate governments. So the, the dawning realization that they'd underestimated how hard it would be to destroy slavery, that their initial policy, which assumed th that slavery would collapse rapidly with the Union invasion in the South, turned out to be inadequate. Still later, they realized that their subsequent policy, in which the federal government actively forced emancipation on the ground, was similarly inadequate. Along the way, they also realized that emancipating slaves was not the same thing as abolishing slavery and that in the end, the only sure way to destroy slavery was not by emancipation but by forced abolition, first by forcing the states to abolish slavery on their own and then abolishing it everywhere by means of a constitutional amendment. The one thing the federal government never did because the Constitution did not allow it was directly abolish slavery in any state where it already existed. Lincoln kept his inaugural promise, and yet slavery was abolished. But back to my original question, how did that happen? 
Insensitive to the distinction between emancipating slaves and abolishing slavery, blind to the history of emancipation before and after the proclamation, we are necessarily unable, to, necessarily unable to gauge the actual significance of the proclamation itself. We can't even ask the basic questions. If slaves were already being freed in significant numbers, what did the proclamation do that was different? I have no doubt that it represented an important shift in union policy, but again, if slaves were already being emancipated, then what was the precise nature of the shift? Exactly what did the proclamation do? What was new in the policy it represented? How was that policy enforced? What was the relationship between emancipation policy and abolition policy, and how did that relationship change over time? And why wasn't the Emancipation Proclamation enough to abolish slavery? It's ironic. By making the, the Emancipation Proclamation the beginning, middle, and end of Union emancipation policy, we end up with no satisfactory explanation for what the proclamation actually meant to the larger history of slavery's destruction. Instead, historians careen back and forth between two equal and opposite extremes. The proclamation freed all the slaves. It didn't free a single slave. You might as well take your pick because nobody seems to know what the Emancipation Proclamation actually did or did not do. There are big implications to all of this, and I want to conclude by pointing to a couple of those that relate specifically to the broader history of the Civil War. First, I don't believe there was such a thing as a shift from union to emancipation. Until the bitter end in 1865, Republicans argued that the Civil War was primarily a struggle to restore the union. But they also argued from the very beginning that slavery was the cause of the war and that slavery was doomed, if not by the electoral triumph of the Republican Party in 1860, then certainly by the secession of the slave states and the ensuing war. The restoration of the Union and the destruction of slavery were inseparable in the minds of most Republicans. They repeatedly declared, beginning in early 1861, that secession forced Americans to choose between the destruction of the Union and the destruction of slavery. That being the case, Republicans went on to argue they had no hesitation in choosing to save the Union by destroying slavery. If Republicans were talking that way from the beginning, if they never stopped talking that way, then the familiar orthodoxy that takes, us, takes the Civil War from Union to emancipation does not seem plausible. Republicans were always fighting to save the Union and always fighting to destroy slavery. This in turn raises a question about what I call the neo-revisionism of contemporary Civil War scholarship. The old revisionist interpretation came in many varieties but it always rested on an essentially negative proposition. Bruce mentioned this in his talk. Then that negative proposition is basically anything but slavery. Whatever else the war was about, revisionists argued, it was not about slavery. This interpretation, however, required one set of arguments about the South, that slavery was already dying, that it was unprofitable, that it wasn't important to Southern economy and society, that it had reached the natural limits of its expansion or whatever. Arguments that most, but not all, historians now reject. But revisionism also required an argument about the North, that it did not go to war over slavery, that the Civil War was an accident brought on by bungling politicians, that abolitionists were a tiny, beleaguered minority, that most Northerners shared the general conviction of black racial inferiority. 
The South had slavery, the argument went, but the North was racist too. I call this the U.B. Phillips move, but it was really just a revival of the antebellum de Democratic Party's relentless effort to shift the terms of debate from slavery to race. This northern aspect of revisionism is alive and well. Indeed, it is pervasive among historians these days. Let, excuse me. We are repeatedly told that the North did not go to war over slavery. Ed Ayers, Ira Berlin, Drew Faust, William Freeling, along with a host of scholars, have reiterated one, of the central one or more of the central propositions of Civil War revisionism, especially that the Northerners went to war positively denying that the struggle had anything to do with slavery. The Civil War is once again described as an accident. Sometimes the accidental nature of the war is gussied up with terms like deep contingency. <laughs> Shearer Davis Bowman's new book on secession states that, the, that during the war, slavery was abolished, quote, inadvertently, end quote. The South had slavery, we are again being told, but the North was racist too. Contemporary scholarship is saturated by this neo-revisionist premise. Con like the antebellum Democrats, like the Civil War revisionists, neo-revisionists have insistently shifted the terms of debate from slavery to race. Virtually any Republican in 1860 would have recognized this argument as Democratic Party agitprop. The Republican response was simple. The South had slavery, the North does not. That is the issue. Republicans took control of the federal government, openly declaring their intention to destroy slavery. They began emancipating slaves in significant numbers in mid-1861, implementing a policy that had been in the making for a generation. There was no shift from union to emancipation, nor was there a shift from gradual to immediate emancipation, because immediate, uncompensated emancipation began almost immediately after the war began, six months before Lincoln's first proposal for gradual abolition in the border states. We don't have to waste our time explaining why it took Lincoln so long to accept emancipation because there's nothing to explain. What we do have to do is start rethinking our fundamental assumptions about the causes of the war as well as the trajectory of the Civil War, and we can start doing that by taking Edward Pierce a lot more seriously. Thank you.